Hey, good morning. Welcome here, you, you winter warriors, all of you in the room. And well, you guys at home, you're just cozy and cuddly, aren't you? That's nice. So good for you. Good, for, good to be with you this morning. I'm glad to be with you. My name's Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here and uh, just super thrilled to be in the room with you this morning as we turn our hearts and minds toward Jesus together. Um, every Sunday morning, or at least most Sunday mornings, our oversight team, which is uh, the, the group tasked with spiritual care for our spiritual family, they, we, we pray together on Sunday mornings. And I said they because I'm often helping run around before stuff gets going, but this morning I got to sneak in and this passage of scripture was read and I thought I would start with us with that this morning. It's Psalm 29. So could I invite you to stand if you're able and we'll read Psalm 29 together. <clears throat> Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now we're here this morning to hear from God. So listen to how this passage of scripture describes the voice of the Lord. Okay. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the cedars and shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes barren, the barren wilderness quake. The voice shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the mighty oaks and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everyone shouts, glory. Yahweh rules over the floodwaters. He reigns as king forever. Yahweh gives his people strength and blesses them with peace. Father, uh, it's good to know that you rule over the floodwaters because our life feels so often uh, like we are being overwhelmed. And so you come to us and you uh, make us awash in your presence. You make us awash in your goodness. And so, Lord, in the midst of the chaos of our lives, whether that's we feel overwhelmed by the waters or maybe we're in the midst of the wilderness and the desert, Lord, your voice speaks in those places. If there's a mountain in front of us, your voice makes the mountain move. And so we've come to hear you this morning, but we've also come to be heard by you. We've come to praise you and to interact with you this morning. And so uh, we are here, you are here. Help us to meet together. Gather us to be with you as you are with each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's sing together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. 
Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. And join us as we continue to praise. You can stand. Father, our, our desire this morning is that our praise, it's interesting, um, most of the way I think about worship is about what I think of it, but our prayer just now was that our worship would be about what you think about it, that you would receive it as a sweet sound. Man, Jesus, my eyes are just so often on me and on my stuff and on my problems, and so, Lord, thank you for the invitation to look to you today. Thank you for an opportunity to recenter my story on who you are. May everything that we do here together today, the singing, the praying, every piece, may it be sweet in your ear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Acts. Acts 10, if you got your Bible. Acts chapter 10. Thank you, Caleb. You're amazing. Um, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Um, we were in Acts 9 last week, and we're jumping to Acts 10 this week. Uh, that's because uh, our denomination uh, provided us $1,000 to take a pandemic pause. So we're going to pause, and uh, we're going south. Don't worry. I drive a Ford Flex. It's impervious to winter weather. Oh, well, not all of us, just me. Uh, so we're going south, uh, Steph and Jack and I, and so Holden will be in the pulpit next week, catching up on that last little bit of Acts 9 where Peter enters into the story. I'm jumping ahead to Acts chapter 10 this morning, so we'll capture all of that. So, um, also, we promise to kind of give you a sense of what the results of the spiritual growth survey were. And that's going to hit your inbox tomorrow morning um, with a video. And the reason it did not come by the end of January, it's really important and really spiritual. Um, I couldn't schedule a haircut until Wednesday and didn't want to do the video until I'd had my haircut. <laughs> so uh, so we, we did that. So I'm excited for you to hear about that and uh, everything that Jesus is doing here at Regen and in and through us. That's not ours. I don't think that's Jack. So... Um, also, if you gave to Cuba, thank you so much for doing that. We'll shoot you an email in the next week or so, let you know what the final tally is on that, but it is far more abundant than all I could have asked or imagined. So, Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Acts 10. But let's start with astronomy. Galileo Galilei, in addition to having an incredible name, uh, is widely considered the father of modern astronomy. In the late 1500s and early 1600s, Galileo observed by telescope the phases of Venus, the four largest orbit, orbital moons of Jupiter, and the rings of Saturn. He studied principles of physics that I failed quizzes on in ninth grade, but things that Caleb probably knows really well, wherever he walked off to. Uh, uh, things like uh, gravity, free fall, the principle of relativity, relativity, speed, and velocity. But Galileo is best remembered for his belief in and defense of, oh, there Caleb is, uh, a basic scientific principle called heliocentrism. Does anybody know what heliocentrism is? And you're not allowed to answer if you're getting your PhD in chemistry. Okay. Okay, so heliocentrism is what you and I believe. We believe that the sun, 
is at the center of our solar system and that the Earth revolves around the sun. In the 1500s and 1600s and even before that, it was a common belief to actually think that the sun revolved around the Earth, that the Earth was the center of our solar system. This was something defended scientifically. It was something defended uh, theologically until a guy named Copernicus came and said, no, guys, I don't think this is true, until a guy named Galileo came along and said, yeah, Copernicus is right, this isn't true. And this gets Galileo into no small amount of trouble, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. But what Galileo taught and studied and understood became part of what's called the Copernican Revolution. It's at the foundation of how you and I think about the solar system, how we think about science, and it changed. The Copernican Revolution changed everything people believed. It was what was true the whole time, but it changed everything people believed about the nature of the solar system. And when we come to Acts 10, we come to a similar kind of Copernican Revolution, not a new discovery, but a rediscovery of what always was. And what always was is that Gentiles, non-Jews, you and I, have always been a part of God's plan, have always been included in God's affections. And this comes into stunning and even troubling clarity when Peter steps into the home of a Roman officer named Cornelius. So if you got your Bible, let's look at Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now, just to stop for a second and to notice, we've been with Paul and now we've jumped to Peter. Uh, Paul is in Acts 9 and then kind of fades, but Paul and Peter are two of the principal characters in the book of Acts. And what Luke is doing is, I think, pretty cool. Luke, have you ever watched a TV show where, like, the main characters, their stories are in parallel and it kind of bounces back and forth between their stories? And then they meet at a designated point in the story. I think the show Dunkirk does that a little bit, although they mess with time. That's what's happening. Luke has introduced us to Paul, and now Paul's story is going, and he's bringing Peter back for them to meet here in a few chapters in the book of Acts. But it zeroes in on Peter here in Acts 10. But before zooming in on Peter, we meet a guy named Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. In Caesarea, Caesarea is the largest city or one of the larger cities in Judea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the, of the Italian regiment, he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Verse four says, Cornelius stared at him in terror. That's because angels are scary. They are not precious moments, dolls. Okay, they're warriors. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your gifts and prayers to the poor, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon. Lots of Simons in the Bible, right? Uh, not a lot of biblical names for men. You got Simon, you got Simon Peter, you got Matthew, you've got Simon, you've got Simon Peter, you know what I mean? So He's staying with a man named Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier and one of his personal attendants. It's an honor guard. He, sends the, he sent them to Joppa, having told them what had happened. So here's this guy named Cornelius. He's in Caesarea, one of the larger towns in Judea. And here's what we find out. He is a Gentile, that is a non-Jew. He is a Roman officer, and he is a God-fearing man. He is a Gentile, Luke's readers gasp. <gasps> he is a Roman officer. <gasps> not just a Roman officer, by the way. He's of the Italian regiment. He's not a guy from Judea that joined the Roman army. He's like OG Roman army, okay? 
Uh, he is an Italian guy, now living in Judea, probably having served 20 years, so that's why he's married now. Um, you had to serve 20 years before you could get married. He served his 20 years. Um, he's got a pretty significantly sized household, but he's also, Luke tells us, a devout, God-fearing man. If you were with us back in Acts chapter 8, we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was also a God-fearer. And what is a God-fearer? A God-fearer is what we would call a seeker, right? They're interested in the Jewish way of life. They're adhering to some elements of the Torah. In Cornelius's case, he prays regularly. He gives to the poor. He's not a full convert to Judaism because at the very least, that would be painful. It required circumcision. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home and ask your mom. And so... This guy, this Cornelius, has been in Judea long enough. He has been in a Jewish context long enough that something about the Jewish way of life has enticed him. He's begun practicing, and not just him, his household. Households, Cornelius's household, uh, you know, my household is what? Me, Steph, and Jack, that's it. Cornelius's household would be him, his wife, his children, their servants and their servants' children, and quite possibly Cornelius and his wife's children and their children. So a household is not just a nuclear family in this, in this image. It's dozens of people, right? And it's not just Cornelius who's practicing the faith. All of Cornelius's household, he's leading the way as they become seekers, as they're giving to the poor, as they're praying, as they're living this righteous lifestyle. And these prayers and this generosity has gotten God's attention. So an angel appears to Cornelius tells him to go find a guy named Simon Peter who is in this moment in Joppa. And so Cornelius does that. Jump to verse 9 and the action kind of fades out and zooms in on Peter. Verse 9 says, The next day as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went on the flat of the roof to pray. Don't know if you know this, it's hot in the Middle East. And so being inside, it's really hot. And so it's not uncommon for your living area to be on the flat of your roof. So Peter goes up to the flat of the roof to pray. It's about noon and he was hungry. That's going to be important in a minute because the Lord's going to meet him where he's at. Peter, you're hungry. Let's talk about food. Amen. You know what I'm saying? But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet or maybe even a tablecloth was let down by its four corners, and in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. I just love the Lord. I love that he meets us where we're at. Peter's hungry, and so the Lord says, here, have something to eat. Only the problem is, what's on the tablecloth in front of him are foods that he and his people are strictly forbidden to eat. It's not just any reptile or any bird or any animal sit in front of Peter. It's foods that are forbidden by the kosher laws of the law of Moses. So there's bacon, and there's like barbecue pulled pork, and there's lobster, and the Lord says, you know, if you dip that in the butter, it's, you know. <laughs> Peter is a good Jew. He's never once eaten any of this food, and to his shock, he hears a voice say, get up, Peter that the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house and standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you are looking for. Why have you come? 
They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by the brothers of Joppa, and stop right here. Peter has just done something that no Jew does. He just let Gentiles into his house. He just left to go travel with some Gentiles. You don't freely associate with Gentiles when you're a Jew in Peter's time. And now he's traveling with them. It's all going to go downhill from here from a certain perspective. But, but stop and notice this about Acts 10. Acts 10 begins with two visions. One given to Cornelius, one given to Peter. And neither of the vision is a vision like, hey, Lord, we're really praying about who we need to reach next. Could you help us see that? Oh, here's a vision of the Gentiles. Go get them. No, no, no. This is just like the, the incident with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's divine engineering. A little whiteboard vision dreaming session of the apostles back in Jerusalem would not have included an Ethiopian eunuch and would not have included a Roman officer named Cornelius or his household. This is divine engineering. This is the Lord taking initiative. So they leave Joppa and get to Caesarea in verse 24. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Uh, Cornelius is a man of some note. He served his 20 years. He's an officer in the Roman army, which means he makes some good money. It means that he has multiple servants. It means that he has kind of this open, open air living area in the center of his home, probably about the size of our sanctuary. And so now that Peter is coming to town, uh, Cornelius has called all of his friends and relatives from the neighborhood and all the ones living with him and said, hey, God gave me this vision and, and this Peter's coming. I want you here to hear what he has to say. So Peter enters his home. He comes into the foyer and Cornelius meets him there in verse 25. And it says, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him, but Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. Y'all, Jews don't touch Gentiles. If I touch a Gentile, I'm going to get cooties. Only worse, I'm going to be ritually unclean. I don't, I don't touch Gentiles. I don't go in their homes. Verse 27, they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. This is a big deal for Peter. Peter actually says so in verses 28 and 29. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. I think Cornelius handles that pretty well. I don't think I should think of anybody as impure or unclean. If I'm Cornelius, I'm like, thank, thank you? Verse 29, so I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Tell me why you sent for me. In this moment, Peter is doing something that Jewish people just don't do. He's traveled with Gentiles. No, he's in a Gentile's house. He's touched a Gentile. Jewish people remain separate. They remain superior by never eating with a Gentile. They remain separate by never touching a Gentile. And in a breath, Peter has done all of these things, and he has done them because the Lord told him to do so. Peter says, why am I here? And Cornelius says, well, I've got a group of people for you to preach. And so he leads them into the big, 
kind of open area, and there are men and women and children, multiple generations, all gathered together. And here's the thing about Peter. When Peter has an audience, he likes to preach. I like that about Peter. I, I know that feeling. When Peter has an audience, he likes to preach. So in verses 34 through 43, he preaches a sermon. There's a line in that sermon, by the way, that I just love. Verse 36 of his sermon, it says, This is the message of good news for the people of, of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This is a little, um, this is where Peter is contextualizing. Cornelius is a Roman officer who has served Caesar, who every good Roman officer confesses is Lord. Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Cornelius has spent his career in service to Kaiser Curios, Caesar, Caesar the Lord, publishing peace on Caesar's behalf, bringing peace to an empire. And now Peter says, hey, listen, buddy, I'd like to enlist you into a better army and into a better kingdom with a better Lord, with a better peace. You've been spending your life publishing peace for this guy Caesar back in Rome. Let me introduce you to Jesus. He is, he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And his peace has no end. And the thing about Peter's sermon in verses 34 through 43 is that it is copied and pasted and then shrunk down from his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Go home this week, read Acts chapter 2, read 1 Corinthians 10, uh, read Acts chapter 10. It's the same story. And that's done intentionally. Listen, sometimes I get asked to preach somewhere. True confessions. I get asked to preach somewhere and I'll say, I'm just going to use that sermon again. It was good. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter's not thinking, hey, my sermon back on Pentecost, it's a good sermon. I'm just going to use that one again. Peter's being intentional because what's happening is so radical. The Jews were not anticipating the Gentiles being included in the covenant. But under the influence of this vision, now presented, he preaches the gospel. And this is Luke's way of saying there aren't two gospels. There isn't the gospel for the Jews and the gospel for the Gentiles. There isn't the true gospel for the Jews and the one that we watered down for the Gentiles. It's the same gospel. And not only is it the same gospel, the same thing that made us the church in Acts 2 is going to be the same thing that happens to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Because it says this in verses 44 through 48. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who are listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out. That's the exact word of Acts 2. Been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit as we did? So he gave orders for them, the whole household, this is why we baptize infants, the whole household, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several, for several days. We're having a mini Pentecost. What happened in Acts chapter 2 is what's happening in Acts 10. And the goal of that, the goal of that is to show everybody that there is no difference. There is no watering down. There is no change in our theology that there is 
a clarity. And really what they're realizing, just like Galileo led the world and Copernicus led the world to realize what was true the whole time, Peter is leading the church to see what was true the whole time because God's plan had always been to include the Gentiles. When God calls Abram to himself, he says, all of the nations, all of the Goyim will be blessed through you. When a woman named Ruth, who is a Moabite, marries a guy named Boaz, she's a Gentile included in the covenant family of Jesus. She's, a, she's David's near ancestor, King David's near ancestor. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, they all see coming a day when the Gentiles will be included in the covenant and it's coming to fulfillment right now. But here's what I can't stop thinking about. I can't stop thinking about Peter standing on the, on the threshold of Cornelius' house. I can't stop thinking about Peter standing on the threshold of Cornelius' house. I can't stop thinking about Peter in what had to feel like a thousand years, taking that first step into a Gentile home, a place that he had never, as far as I know, set his foot. I can't stop thinking about Peter taking that step. John Stott says, um, John Stott, who preached in England for many years, um, is now with the Lord. It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between Jews and Gentiles. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he had intended to bless all the families of the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism and became filled with racial pride and hatred. They despised the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. So there's Peter standing on the threshold of Cornelius' home, and there is more than a step separating Peter and Cornelius. It is a gulf that yawns between them. And in that moment that Peter takes a breath and steps into Cornelius' house, everything changes. When Neil Armstrong got out of the lunar lander, he said, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. And when Peter stepped across the threshold of Cornelius' house, that was one small step for man, but one giant leap forward for the kingdom of God. And this is not archaic. This is not academic. This is not irrelevant to your life or to mine. Far from it. If Peter hadn't stepped into Cornelius' house, if God hadn't led him there with a vision, if in Acts 11, Peter doesn't defend his decision, if that didn't lead to in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council deciding that Jews can be included in the covenant family without circumcision, if that hadn't led to Paul and Barnabas being commissioned on a Gentile mission partway through Acts, if none of that had happened, if Peter had not stepped his foot into Cornelius' house, you and I would not be in this room. You and I as Gentiles are included in the covenant family of Jesus because Peter took a step. Because Peter took a step. If you have ever given to a missionary, if you've ever gone on a missions trip, 
If you have ever given money to help start a new church, to reach people the church isn't otherwise reaching, which, by the way, I think all of you have, it's because Peter did what was right in the Lord's sight. It's because the Lord gave him that vision to go. The missionary impulse that we sense in our faith is founded by Jesus but cemented by Peter in this moment. When Peter stepped across the threshold. And that is why so much of the New Testament is devoted to unity in Christ through the lens of racial healing and racial reconciliation. Peter walks into Cornelius' house. He says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism in every nation. He accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And as the New Testament develops, as the early church gets their head on straight, as Paul arrives just in time on the scene to correct Peter for some more bias later on down the road, what the early church comes to realize is this, there really is only one race. There is one human family. In Christ, God is making for himself a new ethne, a new people. And because of this, Paul's urgent call on the church in Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome, Paul's urgent call is this, be the people Jesus spilled his blood for you to be. Be the people that Jesus has, was raised for you to be. Be the harbinger and the earliest ambassadors and the first invasionary force of a kingdom not of this world where every tribe and tongue and nation gather around the throne. And long before there was a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and long before there was critical race theory and long before Trayvon Martin and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Black Lives Matter, there were the people of Jesus called to purchased for and most often struggling to attain the oneness and togetherness that Jesus died for, that Peter pioneered when he walked into the house of a Gentile, a Gentile who was not only outside of the covenant, but who was, and I I know this word has some meaning today, but who was part of an oppressive regime within the nation of Israel at this time. It was not fun to be occupied by Rome. It was not fun to be occupied by empire. It's all because Peter, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, stepped into the room. It's because Peter stepped into Cornelius' house. One small step for man. One giant leap for the kingdom of God. And my question this morning is, is simply this. What threshold are you still standing on that Jesus has called you to step over? What room is Jesus pulling you into, but you're kind of still like hanging around outside the door (laughs) while you're thinking about that? Let me tell you about this too. What we see in Acts 8 through 10, this surprising inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of Jesus, it is being used by some to say there is this arc to scripture that can make us, that allows us to change the nature of the gospel that allows us to change the story of Scripture to include more people. So we talked about this a little bit in Acts chapter 8, that uh, human flourishing as it relates to our sexuality, human flourishing as it relates to our sexuality, comes when we live within the story of Jesus as Jesus tells it, not as we edit it to fit a contemporary context. The pattern of Acts 10 is not one where we say, like some critical scholars, 
wait, what we thought the Bible was saying isn't what it was saying at all. So we can go ahead and change the story. What happened in Acts 10 wasn't, our culture has changed, so let's change with the truth. What happened in Acts 10 was, our culture has actually caused us to see the Bible badly. We need to repent of that and agree with the story of Scripture. What happened in Acts 10 wasn't a dismissal or minimizing or recontextualizing or watering down of the story of Jesus. It was a rediscovery and a reclaiming of what Jesus was saying the entire time. And when we start moving out on mission, we've been pretty clear. We're going to be moving more outward in the near future, and we want to be reaching more people. We want to be making more disciples. I, I don't know about you, but there's this thing that rises up inside of me. Um, I think it's from my moody days. And, and it's like, well, if we're reaching more people, it must be because we're watering down the truth. Right? Like, if we're reaching more people, it must be because we're watering down the truth. Because I, I was... I went to Moody Bible Institute. Bible is our middle name, and the kind of narrative becomes, if you preach the truth, your church will be small, but you will be faithful. And so I sometimes wonder if, for others, that might be there, this sense of, well, if we're going to start really moving outward, we must be um, thinking kind of in line with the spirit of the age, or watering down the truth, or dismissing the Bible. And actually, what we see in the book of Acts is something really the reverse of that, which is a church crystal clear on orthodoxy devoted to the apostles' teaching and reaching, at minimum, households at a time. Reaching, at minimum, households at a time. If our orthodoxy isn't helping us reach more people, we aren't practicing orthodoxy. If our orthopraxis, which means right living, is hindering us from living the story that Jesus tells. We're actually just practicing religion with the form of godliness, but none of its power. What I'm saying about Acts 10 is it's not a trajectory that causes us to change the narrative of Scripture. It's a trajectory that causes us to live further within it. It's a trajectory that causes us to live further within it. So let's go back to my question. Do you have your answer? What threshold are you standing on but not stepping over? For Peter, that was a racial, ethnic, missiological reality. And maybe it is for you too. But maybe more simply, you're here at a church where we're talking about being more missional. We're talking about being more outward-oriented. We're talking more about sharing our faith. And what you're thinking is, I'll let them do that. I'll just stay right here. And maybe Jesus has invited you to take a step over that threshold. Threshold could be, our church talks a lot about this Holy Spirit stuff. That's weird. I'll let them go ahead, but I'll just stay right here. Scripture says, walk by the power of the Spirit. Maybe there's a step of faith or risk that you've been being asked to take and you've not been taking it because you'd prefer to play it safe and you're standing on the threshold. There's a sacrifice that Jesus has been asking you to make, financial, comfort-related. But you've been avoiding that conversation with him. You've been avoiding taking that next step. I'll just stay right here on the threshold, Jesus. We want to be a church where small steps of obedience lead to massive kingdom breakthrough. 
Do you know why? It's the only thing that has ever led to massive kingdom breakthrough. The only thing that has ever really caused cultures to change, has caused lives to change, is ordinary people taking an ordinary step of faith without realizing what eternal consequences that step would take. And so what I'm inviting you to do with me today, church, is this, to take the step. Take the step. Steph, would you come and lead us? Here at Regen, we do response time each week because we want to be transformed by the word of God. We want to be wise builders. We don't want to just gain insights, hear nice things, but we want to be different when we leave. Um, I was thinking this morning, we, the oversight team, as Kyle said, prayed before the service, and um, as we were praying, I just was really thinking about the fact that sometimes we talk a lot about Jesus without actually believing that he can make a difference, whether that's for ourselves or for other people. And I think Peter stepped across that threshold because Jesus had absolutely turned his life upside down. And even though it had been hard and it had been challenging, it was worth it every step of the way. And so um, I think my question for you this morning, like as you're kind of, if you're picturing yourself at that threshold, what is it that's keeping you from fully believing that Jesus can change your life, can change the lives of those around you? What is it that you need to repent of? What is it that you need to confess or lay down? Um, what is it that he's asking you to give up or let go of so that you can take that step? So we're going to just take about a minute here. You can kind of think about that, and then um, I'll pray before we sing our final song. So let's just take a moment. Holy Spirit, we confess that we often deny the power that Jesus has, that we don't believe that he can do the same things in our lives that we see him doing in scripture. So Father, we confess that unbelief. Father, I confess my unbelief that, that you're worth it sometimes. I confess my desire to take the easier way, to use worldly wisdom to get what seems like the better payoff, even if it's not fruit that lasts. So, Father, we confess our unbelief. We confess our cynicism. We confess that we don't see you for who you truly are. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come today, that you would show us who you are, the Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your power. That, Father, that our hearts would be broken for what breaks yours, that we, we have broken hearts for the lost. 
and that we would have Peter's courage to step across that threshold. And Father, that, that you would use that courage to expand your kingdom, to bring lost people home, and to change our city, our county, our state, our country, our world for you. Not so that we can say how great we've done, but so that we can testify to the greatness of our God. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Don't be creeping in doorways. <laughs> Don't go be creeping in doorways. Where Jesus asks you to go, you go. Love you guys. Be good to Holden next week. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>